Amen. Okay, let's dig in. We have a few more verses here, and we have two more miracles. We did two miracles last time, we got two miracles this time. And I need to just, as we start today, kind of lay the land out as it were. We've been dealing with initially the teaching of Jesus regarding um, the understanding of Mosaic law and how the disciples should live in the Sermon on the Mount. And then since the Sermon on the Mount, we've had coming up to two full chapters, which began with Jesus healing a leper. And there's been these various miracles, and we have the last two of this sequence today. And this whole section has been really showing the authority of Jesus, and that has been emphasized as we've been going through it. When we come to chapter 10, we have the appointing of the disciples, the disciples being sent out, the meaning of discipleship, and all sorts of disciple-type issues, which then in chapter 11 deals with the um, key disciple, formerly as it were, which is John the Baptist. And then everything is building up to one last miracle. So we don't have a whole, as we come in chapters 10, 11, 12, we don't have a whole sequence of miracles in the way that we do in 8 and 9. In 8 and 9, we've got miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle because Jesus, who taught with authority, had that authority to teach with, and he proves it through these miracles. And so these last two are the last two miracles of this sequence. Then we're going to talk about discipleship a bit more, and then we come to the last couple of miracles as we hit chapter 12. And that's why I have Pam read that for us today. That is absolutely crucial. Chapter 12 is kind of like the hinge that everything before and afterwards is completely different. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to do spoilers here, but at the same point, I don't want to say, well, we'll discover this in three months' time, so just hang around. So I kind of need to let you see where we're going for you to understand what's happening today. When Jesus showed up, Following John the Baptist, he and John the Baptist both said, you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That it wasn't, uh, the kingdom wasn't something that was for all Jews. It was only for those who had saving faith. It was only for those who truly repented. And the repentance in the Gospel of Matthew, so much, yes, it's, it's sin generally, of course, but it really revolves in Matthew's Gospel very much around the rejection of the religious system of the day and embracing Jesus' approach to God, to obedience, to the law, to all of these things. Because the Pharisees, Pharisees have just got it completely wrong. As he's going to conclude at the end of the gospel with the Pharisees, that you not only do you stop other people from coming into the kingdom, but you yourself don't get to go in either. That they were, were the, the ubiquitous false teachers of Scripture. And, and so there is in the beginning of this ministry, Jesus offers the kingdom. There you are. You know about the kingdom? And of course they did. The Old Testament talks about the kingdom again and again and again and again and again and again and again. In fact, there's more references to the kingdom of the Messiah in the Old Testament than there are references to the Messiah himself. That the kingdom is one of the most 
significant and major themes of the entire Old Testament. And so they knew that this kingdom involved the Messiah coming, ruling and reigning from the temple in Jerusalem, that, that this was a physical kingdom where their Messiah would rule and reign and his righteousness would fill the entire earth. That's what they're waiting for. And Jesus shows up and John shows up and says, it's within reach. And then Jesus, having said, the kingdom is within reach, but you need to repent to come in, what's that going to look like? What, 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 what is it going to look like, people who have a place in the kingdom? How do they live? What, what does a repentant person look like? And so Jesus teaches Old Testament for three chapters, five, six, seven, Sermon on the Mount, and says, this is what a saved person looks like. This is how a saved person should live. This is what it means to be part of the kingdom people. And he teaches that with authority, meaning he doesn't say, well, the rabbis say this and the rabbis say that. He just says, this is what the Bible says. This is what Moses said, which ultimately is what he originally said because he gave the law to Moses. And then you get to chapters 8 and 9. This is where we are. And Jesus shows that he had the authority because he proves his authority with the miracles. When we come to chapter 12, there will be a formal and permanent rejection of the offer of the kingdom. There's your spoiler. The, the, the Jewish leaders are going to ultimately say, you are not the Messiah, you are not going to be the king, you don't have a kingdom to offer us, we reject you. And at that point, the entirety of Jesus' ministry changes. He's been going out and proclaiming the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is at hand, and he's proving that he is the king so that people know that they can trust him with regards to the kingdom, that they would repent. He's proving it. And then once it's been rejected, everybody doesn't get that offer anymore. That rather Jesus changes the nature of the kingdom. And he teaches them in parables. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. And he teaches them about the kingdom in a way that was never talked about in the Old Testament. That he, he completely removes the physical offer of the kingdom. And he's essentially saying, look, there's, there's a kingdom that you can have, but it's a different kind of kingdom. And we'll explain all that at the time. And at the same point with the parables, and, and many people misunderstand the parables, by the way. Many people think that the parables are Jesus giving you these nice, easy-to-remember stories so that everybody can understand the point. The parables are the exact opposite. The parables are Jesus' way of teaching in public in code so that people won't understand what he's um, talking about unless they're given the key to the code privately. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's shutting down the public offer of kingdom to the Jews. Hey Jews, I'm your king and I have a kingdom. And the Jews, essentially the leadership say, you're not the king, you can't offer the kingdom. You're possessed by demons. That's how you do miracles. And boom, the door shuts. And that offer of the kingdom was removed, was taken away and as we all know, there has never been a time when the Jesus has ruled and reigned and had a physical kingdom on earth. That was promised in the Old Testament, as we'll see as we come later in Matthew, that will happen at some point in the future. But for that generation, 
And that's the key expression in Matthew 12. The ge this generation, this generation, this generation. For that generation, the offer was taken away. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Because the key miracle, the final stand, the final thing that led to this decision is that in Matthew 12, Jesus heals a person who is demon-possessed, and being the demon-possessed by this particular demon, what happens is this, is that he is, uh, he is blind and mute. So the, the passage that Pam read for us, Matthew 12, there's a man who is blind and mute, not just because he's had some damage to his eyes, not just because he happens to not be able to speak for other reasons, but he is possessed by a demon, and that demon is preventing him from seeing and preventing him from speaking. All of that introduction. Now we come to Matthew 9, and here in this section that we're dealing with today, Jesus is dealing with two separate miracles, one of which are people who are blind, and the other one which is somebody who is mute because they have a demon. You see, Matthew 12 combines these things together into one miracle, but here we have two separate things combining the blindness and the muteness. This is significant. Now, this is very, very important. When we understand the structure of Matthew's gospel, we understand that Jesus has a public ministry that says, here is the kingdom, up to chapter 12. And then afterwards, there is a very private ministry where he's training the disciples. Do some people believe? Does he still do some miracles? Yes, but the miracles are typically done not to prove that he's the king, but are done for people of faith who already have accepted that he's the king. That the ministry becomes more private by nature subsequently. Now, when we understand that and we come to Matthew 9, we see, broadly speaking, two blind men saying, Have mercy on us, son of David! Have mercy on us, son of David! And once he heals them, he warns them not to tell anybody. And because of this, many commentators think that Matthew 9 chronologically happens after Matthew 12. Because after Matthew 12, Jesus, when he heals the people of faith who have faith, he's not trying to prove to the world that he's the king because he's not offering them kingdom anymore. He's not, to the world, to Israel, that he's their king because he's not offering them kingdom anymore. So he's doing these miracles more privately, and he often says, don't go and tell everybody. There is not an offer for everyone. I'm not proving who I am. They were told who I am. They've rejected who I am. That offer is now gone. This is more private. And so this is the kind of response we would expect then. So many commentaries at this point will simply say, well, Matthew's not always chronological. And that is true. Matthew's not always chronological. The only gospel writer who claims to be chronological is Luke. So sometimes we, we see all the, the stories repeated in various Gospels, and we're trying to say, well, what order did this happen in? And we use Luke as our template predominantly, because Luke claims to be writing chronologically. Okay? Now, all of this is to say is that so many people will simply look at Matthew 9 and say, oh, well, that happened after Matthew 12, and that's why he tells them, don't tell anybody. And the entire 
interpretation is done on that basis. I don't care when it happened. This story is not repeated in Mark and Luke or in John. So we have no basis for, for these miracles to be able to say definitively they happened before they happened afterwards. I don't know. And for the record, I don't care. What I do care about is why has Matthew put it in the story that he's telling before Matthew 12? I do not like the handling of the Gospels where we come to, we're teaching through one Gospel and we say, oh, well, chronologically that happened later, so we'll, we'll disregard the sequence. Now, I've said to you in Matthew a couple of times, I think this happened later. Why have I told you that? In, just so that when you don't get tangled in knots when you're seeing it a different order in a different gospel. But each time I've told you, this is why Matthew has put it here now. Matthew is telling you a story that you are supposed to start in chapter 1 and verse 1 and go all the way through to the end of chapter 28. That's what you're supposed to do. So whether this event happened before or after, and we have no basis to know, you're supposed to read it in chapter 9. So I was disappointed this week in preparation where I'm kind of dealing with people who are normally very good and, and would say, well, yeah, we understand the structure of Matthew. He says to them, hey, don't tell anyone, this must have happened later. Well, that doesn't help me. We're, we're doing Matthew 9 now, right? So we need to come up with an answer for why has Matthew put this story here before chapter 12 when the kingdom is still on offer? That's our problem. Let's see if we can resolve it as we go through. Okay? So I hope you kind of understand the setting here. We have behavior, broadly speaking, that we expected after Matthew 12 that comes before Matthew 12. So let's deal with it one step at a time. As Jesus goes out from there, he's going out from where, do you remember last time, he's healed the official's daughter who he raised from the dead. More accurately, we had the hemorrhaging woman who would have been unclean for a period of 12 years and yet was still faithful to the commandments of God. And he goes from that place and he comes out and here we are with these other two miracles and two blind men followed him. And so these blind men are following him where he's going, and they're crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, that is very significant, because they're crying out to him for mercy. That means they want him to save them. Now, you can debate whether that is salvation in the sense of a place in the kingdom, or it is salvation purely in a physical deliverance sense, with regards to blindness, and I suspect probably the latter. But what is clear is that they recognize that he's the Messiah. Do you remember, those of you who've been here this long, chapter 1, verse 1, that this is the gospel of Jesus, who is the son of Abraham and the son of David. And right from the beginning of the gospel, we have Jesus who is going to bring salvation to the Jews. He's the son of David the Messiah through the Davidic line, and he's the son of Abraham who was promised that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And so the Gentiles will be blessed through Jesus, but he is nonetheless the Jewish Messiah. So with these guys saying, you are the son of David, son of David, son of David, they are clearly recognizing his Messiahship. Now, many Christian commentators at this point, you know, will say, well, you know, 
They seeing him as the conquering king, and they're not recognizing him as the lamb who's going to give his life. Well, sure they are, but that's not a problem because at this point he is offering the kingdom. So their response is completely accurate. And as I've already said, there's other commentaries that say, oh, well, this happened later. And therefore, they're saying, son of David, son of David. And they shouldn't be approaching him that way, which is why he has to check that they have faith. Because he's only healing people who have faith rather than doing big healings for the entire, the entire you know, nation of Israel. But this is, at Matthew 9, the right response. Jesus wants people to know that he's the king. He wants them to know that he's offering them the kingdom. And if you're the king offering the kingdom, how should people respond to you? What should they refer to you as? And in the Jewish context, the most obvious thing to do, if you believe he is the Messiah, if you believe he's the Jewish king, if you believe his offer of the kingdom, is to say, son of David. And that's what they do. So these guys are guys of faith who have believed in Jesus being the Messiah. They believe that he is the king, and they believe that he can offer them the kingdom. And they are asking him for mercy, which presumably is to do with their blindness. Now when we come to verse 28, he enters the house, and the blind men come up to him, and Jesus says to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Now, if you believe this is chronologically later, if you believe this comes after the um, Matthew 12 incident, then it makes perfect sense. They proclaimed his messiahship, but that's not the issue anymore after Matthew 12. And so they need the issue is, do you have faith? And so he checks their faith. And on the basis of faith, they can now in the house privately have their healing. It fits fine. But Matthew, even if that's the case, Matthew hasn't put it in chapter 13 or 14 or 15. He's put it in chapter 9. So we have to wrestle with this. Why is it here? Well, firstly, I think that there is... Jesus pushing them on the issue of faith. When he says to them, do you believe I'm able to do this? He is, in one sense, checking, double-checking. I think that their statement, son of David, is sufficient, certainly pre-Matthew 12. But he privately checks with them, and he privately says... Do you believe I could do this? Because we've seen this throughout this entire section. And I think this is why it's here, right at the end. Because it's been building up this entire section. In the midst of blindness, do you believe that I am one who is able to do this? Because all of these miracles have been evidence of these are the things that you would expect in the kingdom. Only the king could do this. So do you believe I can do this? And they're like, yeah, we do. And he says, fantastic. And he touches their eyes, and he gives them sight. I'm going to leave it at this point. I'm going to come back to this at the end. At this point, I'm just going to leave it and say, I can see how perfectly this fits for post-Matthew 12, chronologically speaking. But I'm reading it in Matthew 9. So why is it here? We're going to come back to that at the end. What we can see for sure is that these Jewish men who are blind recognize that he's the Messiah. They believe that being the Messiah, he, as prophesied by Isaiah, is going to be able to open the eyes of the blind. 
We're talking about Isaiah and blindness a lot more in, in future weeks. But he, they believe he can open the eyes of the blind because he is the promised Messiah. And then Jesus gives them uh, sight. And their eyes were opened. He touched their eyes. It shall be done to you according to your faith. Um, they believed he could do it, and he does it. And their eyes are opened, and he warns them, see that no one knows about this. Of everything thus far, this is the biggest problem with it being in Matthew 9. If it was Matthew 13, 14, 15, you'd expect that. Perfectly normal. Here it's weird. I'm going to come to that in a moment. Okay? Um, Let's move, though, beyond. They go out, they tell the news, and it spreads throughout the land. So this, they have obeyed him which, by the way, is a contrast with the woman who touched the tassels, who is completely obedient to the words of Christ. But they, they go out and they tell people, as one might expect. Then in chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 32, they're going out and behold, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. Right, this is crucial. Two things to see here. We're building up to Matthew 12. That's significant. He's giving us some, some, um, a little trail of crumbs here. We're seeing blind men, and now we're seeing a mute demon-possessed man. When we come to the finale of the first half of the gospel in Matthew 12, we're going to have blind and mute demon-possessed man. So he's kind of leading us that way. The, the man would be mute because he was demon-possessed is absolutely crucial. We've mentioned a couple of times that there were things that the Pharisees taught that the Messiah alone would be able to do. Now, when you look at this whole section of miracles, beginning in chapter 8, ending in chapter uh, 9, here, this, this long sequence of miracles, Jesus proving his authority, when we did the first one, I told you there's a little sandwich here, there's an inclusio, that we begin with a messianic miracle and we end with a messianic miracle. And what I mean by that is not that the Messiah is doing the miracle because he's doing all the miracles, but that there are miracles that only the Messiah would be able to do. Well, who said that? Who said that only the Messiah would be able to do it? Well, the Pharisees did. They've, they've just shot themselves in the foot here because the, ra- the, ra- the rabbis, the Jewish leaders for, for some time have been saying that the Messiah alone would be able to do this and that. So with the, the leprosy passage, as I said to you at the time, there's an entire chapter of Leviticus that is dedicated to what a Jew was to do when he was healed from leprosy. And it had never been used. Not in all the hundreds of years from the time of Moses had it ever been used. And so the the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the rabbis of the day said, that's for the Messiah. Only the Messiah will be able to heal a person from leprosy. So Jesus heals a person from leprosy, and then he has to present himself. And so Jesus says to him, notice this sandwich I'm telling you about. There's bread at the beginning and bread at the end, okay? We've got a bookend. At the beginning, only the Messiah can do this healing of leprosy. Jesus heals him, and he said to him in chapter 8, See that you tell no one. Don't tell anybody that I've healed you from leprosy. Why would he say that then? Because he had an obligation to show himself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony. The whole point is is that the Jewish leaders said only the Messiah will be able to do this. 
Moses says, when you're healed, go and present yourselves to the priest. What do they do? They make an offering. They make an offering just because you claim to have been healed of leprosy. Then they have to do seven days of research and investigation. And then they have to check, were you, were you a leper? Have you been a leper? Are there people testifying that you were a leper? Are you clearly not a leper anymore? And they did all of this investigation. At the end of that, they had to do a whole bunch more sacrifices. And for that entire period of time, they have essentially been telling themselves by their own teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. So it was important that the leper didn't go, wow, I'm healed from leprosy. Let me run around and tell my friends, I was a leper. Now I've been healed. Jesus healed me. He must be the Messiah. That would be the obvious thing to us to do. But Jesus is saying, you can't do that. Because this is a miracle for the leadership of Israel. They need to be shown your healing from leprosy so that they know that you are the Messiah. Because they are going to make a decision on whether you are or aren't that's going to impact and affect the entirety of this generation of Israel and the entire history of Israel from this point forward. They need to know. That's the priority. So you don't go running around telling people, you do what the law tells you to do. Go make the, you're healed, make the offering. Go, do it, now. Now we come to the end of this section. Two chapters of back-to-back miracles. Jesus showing that he is the king, he has the authority, that he is able to do these things that are associated with Messiah. And we end with another miracle that the Pharisees themselves taught was messianic. They taught that only the Messiah would be able to cast out a demon from a man who was mute. Why would they say that? Is there another chapter of Leviticus that hasn't been used? No, the reason is this. Is that when the Pharisees came across someone who was demon-possessed, that they had a way of dealing with it. Do you remember when Jesus cast out the, the, the multiple demons from a man? He says to him, what is your name? Our name is Legion. The first use of plural pronouns. Legion, there are many of us, right? Now, we see that occasionally where there is communication and the demons speak and the name is asked. The Pharisees said, when we deal, when we deal with a man who is demon-possessed, then we can talk to the demon. We, can, we have a way of interacting through speaking and asking this demon to respond. What is your name? Why are you here? These kinds of questions. Well, that's an interesting system to have, and I'm going to pass no judgment on whether the Pharisee system was a good system or a bad system. It's not wrong to communicate, clearly, because Jesus did it. But what's the problem with a man who's mute? (laughs) If the demon makes you mute, you can't speak. It's as if, it's as if that you've got a door to be able to get the demons out, and so the demons have put a key on the door with a lock. It's like, they can, they can cast me out by asking me questions, but I'll make the man mute, and now they can't ask the questions, or at least he can't answer them, and, and that way they can't cast him out. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they had a system for dealing with demon-possessed people, and that involves speaking. 
the, the person possessed speaking, or more accurately, the demon speaking through that person. So when a person who was demon-possessed was made mute, they have no, no other tools in their arsenal. They, they can't deal with it. And so the Pharisee said, should this bizarre, rare occurrence happen, I guess only the Messiah will be able to deal with this. And so we have the beginning of chapter 8 and all of these miracles, a miracle that only the Messiah could do. And now at the end of chapter 9, the last of these miracles, a miracle that only Messiah could do. And that's why it's so significant. So they bring to Jesus, verse 32 of Matthew 9, this mute, demon-possessed man. That's why it's significant that he's mute. And again, and we've seen this before with Matthew. Look at verse 33. And after he cast him out, <laughs> Matthew, Matthew is typically not big on fanfares. And he did this, and he did that, and he spoke with a loud voice. And Matthew's just like, yeah, and it happened. It doesn't matter how it happened. What matters is, is that Jesus is the, did what he did, that he's the one who is able to do it. And so after the demon's cast out, what happens? The mute man speaks. He's now able to speak because he's no longer got the demon, and he's no longer mute, and so he can speak. And the crowds marveled, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. This is an astonishing thing that has been accomplished. How could this possibly happen? And the Pharisees themselves have taught that only the Messiah could do this miracle. So they've now got some explaining to do, right? Either he's the Messiah, or boy, have you got some explaining to do. It's like if, you, if, if you're a policeman and you, walk, you, you hear a commotion, you're called to an address, you turn up at the house where the commotion is, and you find a man standing over a body, and he's covered in blood, and the person's been stabbed, and he's got a knife in his hand. It's like, I think I know what happened here, but if it's not, you've got some explaining to do. And they've got some explaining to do. They said only the Messiah could do this, so he, he's the Messiah, right? So what do they do? What do they say? They, he, they say, the Pharisees, verse 34, but the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. Now this is going to come to a head in chapter 12 with a clear, definitive, permanent answer. But what is clear from the tense here in the Greek is that they were saying it. it. It's not just that they, it's not like this happened and the Pharisees stood up and says, he does this, first time they've said it. But rather, that because Jesus had been casting out demons from people, that this was their way of explaining how someone that they don't think is the Messiah, because he's not very nice about them and he's not behaving like a Pharisee and surely the Messiah would, this is their way of explaining how it is that Jesus is able to cast out demons. So he's not saying that they said this specifically in response, but what's happened is that Jesus, who has been casting out demons, we saw that way back in chapter 8, um, that he has been casting out demons, that here they have an explanation for that generally, but now he's cast out a special category. He's cast out a demon that makes someone mute, which only the Messiah could do. And so they say to him, 
Oh, so rather, they are generally saying nothing, um, he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. And we know that name, it's Beelzebub, and we'll talk about that more when we come to chapter 12 and we come to that big finale. So how then do we deal with why Matthew's got this stuff somewhat earlier? This is important. With regards to the demons, what we're showing is it's not as if Jesus in Matthew 12 just did one miracle and they gave an answer and he said, right, that's it, done, finished. But rather, they had been giving the response that the Messiah could cast out demons, even mute ones, because he himself was possessed by a chief demon. They'd been giving that answer progressively over an extended period of time. It wasn't that they just came up with this idea in Matthew 12, but they have had this idea for a period of time. That their rejection of Jesus was not a one-moment thing in chapter 12, but their rejection of Jesus was a consistent thing where they are progressively building an argument against him. Now, this is why hatred, friends, is such a powerful thing. When you hate somebody you will only ever see bad things. And as you, as you deal with your hatred in your head, there are only two possible options. One is that you repent of hatred. Matthew 6, we dealt with that. And, and the other one, oh, sorry, Matthew 5. And the other one is that you justify your hatred by creating a scenario where this person that you hate is so bad and so evil and so wicked that it's justified. And that's what they're essentially doing. Jesus, from, from, not even Jesus, from John the Baptist showing up and saying, you brood of vipers, who, you to, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? From the moment that they are calling on people to repent, from the moment that they're refuting the Pharisees' teaching, to Jesus going around the synagogues and teaching the stuff that we see in the Sermon on the Mount, where he's saying, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't, this isn't righteousness. They've got this wrong. You can't be like this. If you want to be in the kingdom, you've got, to do, you've got to be like this. That you need to repent. This is what it would look like if you're a repentant person. All of this is offensive to the Pharisees. So now he comes and he does these miracles. Healing a leper, casting out a demon that's made someone mute. That only the Messiah could do according to the Pharisees' own teaching. And they're still not going to budge because they've just developed this hatred within their hearts, within their minds, over an extended period of time. So what Matthew 9 is doing, first and foremost, is it is showing us that we're not going from nothing to boom, Matthew 12, but rather that the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus is something that was ongoing. And there's another point of application from that, and that is this, the mercy of God. When the Pharisees rejected Jesus initially, right from the beginning, he could have shut it all down. When the Pharisees started saying, well, maybe he's, if he's casting out demons, maybe, he is, maybe the prince of demons, maybe he himself is possessed. That's an idea. Let's think this through some more. At that point, he could have cut them off. But he kept the offer of the kingdom open, even in the midst of their rejection, their rebellion, and their blasphemy. Because he is a God who is full of mercy. Remember that, by the way, when you go out in the world and you see people with hideous sins, speaking hideous blasphemies, 
living in hideous ways, saying hideous things about our God. You're like, oh man, I wish God would just shut him down. That was you. You were hideous with your hideous sins, rejecting God, pursuing the sins of your heart. That was me. That was all of us. And while we were God's enemies, he reached out to us. When we weren't seeking him, he sought us. And he called us and he opened his eyes and he drew us to himself and he saved us through faith by the blood of his son. And maybe the people who blaspheme, the people who, who live in outright rebellion against God, maybe God is going to save those people before he shuts the door upon them. The mercies of God. We'll talk about that more in chapter 12. But then we come to the issue of the blind men that we spoke about previously, where how is it then, if the offer of the kingdom is still on, as far as the flow of Matthew's concerned, why is he saying, don't tell anyone? With the leper, we can see it, but why is he telling them? And I think the whole point of this passage today is that it is a transitionary passage. They show up in Matthew 4, Jesus and John the Baptist are saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where are they going? They're going to all the synagogues. Where is he teaching? On a mountain. Everybody can hear. And he's saying clearly, the Pharisees are wrong. This is what the Bible means. This is how you should live. This is true. This is false. This is righteousness. This is it. It's all clear and clear and public. Now we come to these miracles, and with the leper, the first of the miracles, Jesus says, you mustn't tell anyone, and we know why, because you have to go to the leaders of Israel to present yourself to them. It's a sign for them. Now, because we know that in Matthew 8, at the beginning of our sandwich, when we come to the end of this section, which this is the last couple of miracles, we now got our bookends, we should also be thinking, because we have another messianic miracle, because we have him again saying, don't tell anyone, we've got these commonalities that sandwich these things together, connect the beginning and the end. We also should be thinking about the leaders of Israel. Now, I, we know that's the right conclusion because we've seen ahead and we've seen Matthew 12 and we know that we're going to have a blind and mute demon-possessed man and we know that that's linked to the rejection of Jesus by the leaders of Israel and we will see in Matthew 12 that that leads to him saying, right, we're done with the offer of the kingdom. So we know that's where it's going ultimately with the benefit of hindsight. So why is he saying this here? This is crucial. This is a statement to the Jewish leadership. This gospel was written for Jews. Jewish believers, for sure. Jewish unbelievers, perhaps. But Jewish believers who are going to have to witness to their Jewish unbelieving family, friends, community. So he's presenting throughout Matthew's gospel what is wrong with the Judaism of the day. And what is happening here is this, is that the leper had to be silent because of the leadership of Israel, chapter 8. In chapter 12, Jesus is going to be silent. And he's going to tell everyone to be silent because the offer is closed because of the rejection of the leadership of Israel. And here in the middle, 
at the end of chapter 9, we have, uh, we're joining the dots. We're going from that first be silent because of the leaders to the final permanent be silent because of the leaders. And this is our halfway house, as it were. I think that's why it's here at this point. What the blind men represent is where we're going. They did, I don't think he had to be in a house. When they're shouting, son of David, son of David, he's not telling them to be quiet, but rather they come to the house and he happens to heal them in a way that he's going to do subsequent to Matthew 12. Now, why is this significant? Because they're blind. The blind people physically, they see spiritually that he is the son of David, that he is the Messiah that he can bring healing, that he is who he claimed to be, that he does have authority, that he can declare who is righteous and who is not, that he can say who will come into the kingdom and who won't. They see. And the Pharisees, they don't see. And, and this is seen because Jesus is going to make this exact point in Matthew 13. When the offer of the kingdom to Israel comes to an end, Jesus is going to quote to them. And I'm going to turn ahead and read it because I want you to see that my conclusion on limited evidence here is going to be proven right in a few chapters' time. That when you get to Matthew 13, and the disciples say, why on earth are you speaking in parables? No one knows the point that you're making. Why not just talk plainly like you used to talk plainly? And Jesus says to them this, verse 11 of Matthew 13, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Mystery, by the way, is not some fluffy word. Mystery means something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament that has now been revealed. Before Matthew 12, everything about the kingdom that the, Jesus was saying had already been revealed. They, here's the kingdom, it's at hand. They know what he's talking about. It's been revealed. The Old Testament talks about it nonstop. But now with the parables, he's talking about mysteries of the kingdom, which means things about the kingdom that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. When you look at the Old Testament, the king comes and he sets up his kingdom. Now we've got a situation where the king has come, but the kingdom that's talked about in the Old Testament hasn't come. He's got a different kind of kingdom for a period of time until the physical kingdom comes. So he says, you guys, the disciples, those who believe, you get to know about the, these mysteries of the kingdom. You get to see this. But they don't. The leaders rejected me. They don't get this. The people of Israel as a whole rejected me. They don't get this. And he says, for whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Those who didn't believe were given evidence that he was the, who he claimed to be. Now that evidence is being taken away. Those who already believe, because of the evidence, are going to get even more evidence. That's how it's going to work. Therefore, this is why I speak to them in parables. 
Because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not understand. I'm talking to them in parables, not so they've got some clever story that helps them remember the point, but for the exact opposite reason. I'm speaking to them in parables so that when I'm teaching in public, that the unbelievers, those who've rejected me, cannot understand what I'm saying. They can't hear and they can't see. They can't hear because no one's speaking to them. <coughs> Mute. And they can't see, blind. You get the point? And just to really hammer that point home, he quotes to them from Isaiah 6. In, and in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they would see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. Guys, that is one of the most offensive passages of Scripture to anybody who has a seeker-friendly, God-loves-everybody approach to the Christian faith. Because what it is clearly saying is this. We don't want them to hear and understand. We don't want someone to speak to them. We don't want them to see what's going on. Why don't we want them to see? Well, they might repent. And we don't want that. Our faith has to be robust enough for this kind of passage. This is what Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 6. And he says, I need someone to go. Who can go? And Isaiah says, oh, I'll go. I'll go and preach. Send me. And Jesus says, okay, here's your mission. You ready? Do you accept your mission, Isaiah? I got my mission. Tell me what it is, God. I want you to go and preach to everybody, but I want you to preach in a way so they don't understand. I want you to preach in a way that they don't hear, that they don't see. Well, why am I going to preach that way? Because if you, if you preach in a way they can see and they can understand, they might repent. And we don't want them to repent. Because you are proclaiming judgment to them. In Matthew through to chapter 12, Jesus is saying, the kingdom is within your reach. From Matthew 13, he's saying, there's no offer. You had your chance, and now it's gone. Now, we're going to see that really clearly in Matthew 12, and I'm looking forward to teaching that whole section. When we get there... Oh, we're going to spend so long. We're going to go to Isaiah 6 and see the context of that quote. And it's going to be deep and rich. And we're going to spend multiple weeks there. It's going to be fantastic. But I mention it briefly now so that you can see what Matthew is doing is taking us on a journey. And the journey began with, here's the kingdom. If you want it, repent and it's yours. To here's what repentance looks like. To Okay, now you have to believe what I told you repentance looks like. I'm going to heal a leper. That only the Messiah can heal lepers. So don't tell anybody you've been healed, leper, because you need to tell the leadership, because they've got to make this decision. And we have this whole sequence of miracles, and we end it with people being healed from blindness, but don't tell anyone. This is leading us to Matthew 12. Because the blindness of the Pharisees is already coming. Because they are already saying, maybe he does it because he casts demons out by the chief of demons. Maybe that's how he has the power to do it. It makes no sense. In chapter 12, Jesus is going to destroy their logic. But logic doesn't matter when you hate someone as much as they hated Jesus. Sometimes 
we proclaim Christ in the clearest possible way. We answer questions with the, the best, most brilliant responses. And people still don't see. If there's one thing that comes through clearly through all of this, be it the miracle here or where this story of Matthew is leading us through into chapter 12, one thing is really clear. Jesus opens eyes. Not clever arguments. Not being good and religious and doing works. But Jesus opens eyes. And that these men who are blind, he opens their eyes. And the implication that you and I are supposed to take is that they could already see son of David, son of David. And he must have opened those eyes as well. And the Pharisees can't see, even though their eyes are working fine. And eventually, they're going to get to a point where he makes them completely blind and doesn't give them the opportunity to see again. And that leads on to the blindness of Israel, which is explained in Romans chapter 9, which is where we'll be on Tuesday night. But for now, we conclude the miracles in this section, and we will complete chapter 9 next week. And then in chapter 10, we will have, having heard the, um, the call of Jesus to repent, having seen what a repentant person looks like, and having had Jesus prove that he is the one that makes such declarations, from chapter 10 we get to the see truly what a disciple is like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for these miracles before us. Father, we see the blindness of the Pharisees, and we pray, Lord, right now in this moment, we pray that you would be merciful and open eyes. I'd like us all at this time, just with our eyes closed, just to think in our hearts of those that we love. Parents, children, family, friends. Think of those who are blind, whose eyes are closed to the gospel. Jesus, you open eyes. These people upon our hearts. These people that we are thinking of now. Have mercy on them, son of David. They can't say that for themselves. So we say it for them. Have mercy, son of David. And Father, whether you open eyes or not, here we are. Send us. Amen. Thank you.